Hey everybody, welcome back to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. Welcome to season four of the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. It is 2022. Um, What's been going on here? For me, I've just finally created a logo for Bikepack Adventures. It's a new website I developed to share bikepacking routes around the region that I live and, and maybe ultimately further abroad. But at the moment, it's just kind of Ontario and Quebec. Figured start close to home, take it from there. So I'd like to thank Theo Kelsey Verdeckia, who was a past guest of mine on the podcast, for being in such a cool photo, and for Megan Dunn for giving permission to use her photo. So you can find her at Evil Moose Megan on Instagram. And it's a really, really cool photo of Theo doing a wheelie, I think, just prior to going on and racing the AR700. So very cool photo, Rocky Mountains in the background, and uh, super stoked to have put it into a logo. In other news, the Patreon draws. So the draws over. The winner of the Blackburn Outpost Elite frame bag was Dave Whale from Boulder, Colorado. So that is uh, heading his way. Even though the draw is over, I really do appreciate anybody out there that enjoys the podcast and is able to support its continued development. I try to do as much stuff on my own as possible from everything from like, yeah, developing a new logo I do all my own post-processing of the podcast episodes, all the prep for it, website development. Yeah, and I do all that without spending any of the hard-earned money that has come my way from uh, the supporters. So I really do appreciate you guys. And I'm just basically kind of pooling that money to go into the annual fees, which they're kind of significant, man. They uh, I basically have the website host fees, the podcast hosting, the URL, WordPress themes. And on top of that, occasionally I need a new piece of equipment. At the moment, I'm really looking forward to buying this year a digital mixer. When I first started the podcast, I bought a, a Zoom H5 digital handheld recorder. Although it's a good piece of kit, not really getting the most out of it in the sense that I'm doing almost all my interviews virtually, which means I should really have something that can hook up to my computer and then I could just kind of do everything from there. If I go traveling, I can always take the Zoom with me and um, keep it as kind of a portable product. Yeah, so hopefully I can I can get a digital mixer for podcasting and that way I can set up a lot of the uh, presets and stuff so that I don't have to really edit as much after and it saves a lot of time just not having to do post-processing. Just saving a bunch of time does make it worthwhile in the end so I'm looking to invest that money and um, but definitely need more show supporters. So if you're out there guys, really appreciate it. The next announcement is about Bikepack Adventures. The The website is getting better by the day. Check it out, www.bikepackadventures.ca. And the grand apart is now live on the website. Hey guys, Chris of the future here. Uh, apparently I made a mistake here. It's not August 3rd. I don't know how I said that and why I said that, but it's actually July 3rd. So the grand apart is July 3rd at 8 a.m. from Chelsea, Quebec. Hope to see you there. That's 15 kilometers north of the Parliament buildings in Ottawa, the capital of Canada. And so far, there's six people registered. So that is really, really cool. Uh, it happened so fast. I couldn't believe it. I made a couple posts and boom, people are registering. I have three different distances to choose from. So I thought I'd mix it up like that so that, you know, people can choose their adventure. And they are titled the Canadian Shield 400, 1000 and 1300. Obviously, the distance is being kilometers, not miles. So check it out at bikepackadventures.ca if you're interested. So I'm in the process of building a new bike and I'm super stoked on that. 
It's going to be the uh, the the bikepacking machine for the gnarly stuff, for the big rides that are just going to destroy the body and have really, really challenging terrain in them. And that is it for now. On to the podcast. In this episode of the Bike Tour Adventures podcast, Matthew, Katie, and I finally have a chance to record this long-awaited interview. I first learned about Matt when I heard about the Butter Tart 700, more commonly known as the BT 700, the first long-distance bikepacking route in Ontario that featured a grand depart. In the time since creating the BT-700, Matt has gone on to develop five long-distance bikepacking routes in Ontario with several shorter options available. An experienced bike tour, bikepacker, route designer, and a chef, Matt has tons of experience to share with listeners. Matt, welcome to the Bike Tour Adventures podcast. Good to fun to be on, Christopher. <laughs> I hope I got that right. Is it BT-700 and five others? Uh, I could be wrong. We'll find out later. <laughs> yeah, I think it's four. Maybe five with the BT-700. Ah, could be. <laughs> Anyways. We'll figure it out. So, Matt, tell us about yourself. About myself. Okay. Well, I'm uh, a dietitian living here in Ontario. And what else to say? So, I got it wrong. You're not a chef. You're a dietitian. I do uh, recipe development. That's okay. also part of my okay. profession. He's so. a chef. He's a chef. Chef. I want to use the word chef. Chef is like... Those guys are at a different level. All I'm right. like a home cook. I'm okay. economics. I'd like to see the hat though. You know, you got to get one of those hats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't even wear an apron, so it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, just in Ontario and also like being a cyclist for the last, you know, two or three decades. And so kind of combine the nutrition and the cycling into into uh, kind of the way I live. Okay. And um so you grew up in Ontario and did you ever live abroad or anything like that? Because I see you have done a lot of explorations abroad. Or? No, just traveling. Just traveling. I, mean, I always, we, yeah, we always have the dream of like renting a place in Europe somewhere for, for a year or something like that. But yeah, I've always just always lived in Ontario. All right. So Matt, um, what does bicycling mean to you? Bicycling means to me, I think freedom and adventure are the two things that come to mind. Okay. And, and have you always been a cyclist or was this kind of something that developed a little later in life or what's your, what's your story there? No, I just, uh, I would say probably when I was an undergraduate university at the university of Guelph, like in the, you know, in the 1990s, I finally got around to getting a bike and there were some local mountain bike trails and just started exploring a bit of those. And then I did my master's degree at Florida state university down in Florida oh, wow. okay. and just used a bike Use my bike to get around down there because obviously the climate and I didn't have a mm-hmm. car. So went from there. And then from that, I uh, decided to take a summer job leading bicycle tours um, for a Canadian oh, company on the East Coast. So no we way. did tours cool. in Nova, yeah, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick and Quebec. To be honest, I was an awful bike, bike tour leader. <laughs> I just didn't really have like the, the patience and. You know, all I wanted to kind of do was go ahead and ride my bike and not have to deal with people. people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was a great learning experience and that really cemented my love for my – it was the first kind of experience traveling by bicycle. Like I wasn't carrying anything and it was all van supported. Yeah. But that was my first uh, kind of taste of just being out on the road every day. And then we have one – We have, I remember we had one uh, client or guest, whatever you want to call it. Uh, they had been touring in New Zealand. And, I mean, I didn't know anything about that. Yeah. And for like a week, she was just convincing me, you should use the money that you saved up from this job and go touring in New Zealand. And I was like, okay. So <laughs> I 
you know, Young I decided and to spend a winter. Huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Decided to spend a winter, you know, in late 1990s, um, traveling by bicycle in New Zealand. Uh, and that was, it was a lot different then. It was obviously, I, I only had like paper maps mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, a lot more, a little more road back then too. And I didn't know what I was doing. I had a big trailer and I, I okay. brought a big, like a bike pack, uh, back backpacking, like bag right. and just stuck, stuck everything in there and stuck it in the trailer. Like one of those massive it, 70 liter type things, right? Yeah. Or some like from mountain equipment co-op, some sure. like massive thing. And it was so heavy. And, and the first day was like, I didn't plan right. And I didn't eat right. And there were too many Hills. And I remember getting to the campground and it was like, Spunking so bad, and I, I couldn't even set up the tent, so I like fell asleep on the picnic table and whatever like that. And uh, <laughs> but I got better at it. Where did you uh, Where did you start your New Zealand tour? What part, north or south? On the northern part of the South Island. Okay, so yep. I think it was a maybe a town called Nelson, I believe. Mm-hmm. I, I think started so, from yeah. there. It's been a few and years. This is really yeah, and this was bef- just before like the tourist boom. In New Zealand, so before like all the Lord of the Rings and everything, yeah. So uh, I want to go back because now they have like a, a bike packing yeah. infrastructure there that's insane. And it's growing, yeah, yeah, just incredible stuff. But uh, but over the trip, I got better and more confident, and by the end of it, I was totally hooked. I was like, this is just the ultimate way to see a place and travel. Like you feel so good, you see so many more things, mm-hmm. and. Uh, you started South Island, then I guess you cycled kind of down towards like Tianu, like towards Queensland, uh, Queenstown, and then Tianu maybe in the south or something. And yeah, so I did kind of a, I think like a figure eight loop or something like that okay. on South Island. Saint Joseph's. And then I went. Is, is it Saint Joseph's? Phrase? Yeah. Saint, Saint, I forget the name of that glacier. <laughs> the glacier. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Awesome. And I think Mount Cook National Park. I'm mm-hmm. not sure they still call it that. I think they reverted to their uh, uh, Maori name. Yeah. And then, yeah, I did some, did, and finished up like in some parts of the Northern Island. Oh, and, okay. Uh, it's such, it's such an, oh man, the diversity in that country. <laughs> I was there in 2011 and uh, just rented a camper van. It was super fun. I mean, it was, you know, 17 days and we just covered the country and just, ah, oh, what a spectacular place. I, I, I compare it to Canada, yeah. but as like a, a condensed version, you know, you have everything Canada has, but like, in, in a smaller package, so you can actually kind of see everything, you know? Yeah, I mean, in like one ride, you can be like at glaciers and rainforests and, <laughs> and a beach all in the same mm-hmm. day. And So how long were you there for? Uh, three months. Three months, nice. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And what kind of bike were you using? Was it that mountain bike you talked about kind of referenced earlier? Or was it a more of a like a traditional touring bike? Yeah, it was a still mountain bike that I bought in university. So like kind of a hardtail I think eight speed back then. Yeah. Eight more than a lot of other people had. Yeah. (laughs) Or seven more. (laughs) I still actually have that bike in the basement, but. uh, Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's fun. Like when I, when I talk to people like, and even um, Eric Betteridge, you know, as well. And he, he was talking Mm -hmm. about like these bikes he still has from the nineties and eighties. And, you know, when he got into all this and it's, I think nowadays we kind of just throw things away, but like, you know, it's kind of cool to see people still hang on to these things. Like I just upgraded my mountain bike. I'm doing that as we speak this winter. And um, the old one, I thought, well, I'll keep it for my nephew if he comes and visits. But <laughs> it's not a special bike by any means. But, you know. Yeah. So you said you were using a trailer. So you didn't have any racks or anything. You were just hauling this big, heavy trailer with backpack behind you. Yeah, I rented a trailer from oh, okay. a company in New Zealand and uh, went with that. But uh, 
after that trip, I actually bought one of those uh, those Bob trailers. Yeah. Because I thought it was like the ultimate way because you can just stick all your crap <laughs> in one spot. Do you still um, have it? I do. I never use it though because I, I just borrow I've, from you. <laughs> I've fallen out of fallen out, yeah. <laughs> I've fallen out of favor on the trailer for touring. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It would be kind of hard to go down some of those hills you've put into the VT seven hundred with the Bob trailer behind you. Let's be honest. <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, I mean, the trailers were big when like the the Great Divide route, like for the first decade or so on the Great Divide route. But I don't even think most people on the Divide route use a trailer anymore either. Yeah. Actually, I found it the worst is when you get a really, really steep hill because you just have so much weight back there. It's <laughs> it's it's really hard to get up those. Yeah, so. I haven't really traveled with the trailer much now. I mean, we will now because of the baby and stuff. But um, yeah. so I'm looking forward to that. But but that's a different style of like. I mean, you're not going to be doing like crazy single track with the baby in the no, back. Exactly. Like, I, no, exactly. I wanted to. <laughs> I wanted to get like the two terrain uh, single yeah. wheel suspension one, but. I, th- I think my wife kibosh that even before she knew how much it cost. She was like, you're not taking my child on trails <laughs> like that. I'm like, ah. <laughs> so what kind of things did you pack in those early days of bike touring? Uh, you know, like delving into it and getting that bit of experience. I mean, I'm sure you overpacked, presumably. Yeah, like I would pack a full on like hiking boots. Whereas now I just suck it up and hike with my like my touring shoes mm-hmm. and like too many clothes, I think. You know, back then too, there weren't, there wasn't the style of gear. So it was like a big, heavy tent, a little heavier tent, like a huge, like mummy sleeping bag that didn't pack down very well. So it was just, it was really hard to like put everything into a smaller space. So yeah, it's kind of amazing to see how, how the, the, just the gear development has allowed bikepacking to be a thing that it is now, because like if you would have tried bikepacking, quote unquote, traditional bikepacking in in the eighties or nineties. You would have been really hard pressed to, even if you had a saddlebag and handlebar roll to like fit your stuff. Cause you would have just had no place for, for like the tent oh, yeah, bag would have sure. taken everything. Right? Yeah. yeah. In some ways I think we were like tougher back then though. Like you just, you just put up with what you had. <laughs> like I'm just even trying to think of like doing these tours on like an eight speed bike back then, <laughs> but I don't know. Yeah. Just using a paper map too. Like just a paper map. That's a. That seems so like Stone Age now. Yeah, and I, I guess it slows you down though, because it allows you to to stop and when you're looking to figure out where you are or where you're going, you now have a chance to stop and rest the legs and body. So mm-hmm. uh, maybe it's uh, in some ways it's, it's also good. You know, I know I, I do read about some bike tours out there that still swear on going using back. paper maps yeah. and they they don't want to yeah. use technology because they they'd rather get lost and explore and. And it's kind of neat. And maybe it's like the, you know, how everything kind of goes backwards on itself slowly. So, you know, we had those hipsters using typewriters in cafes not long ago. And maybe <laughs> maybe five years from now, all bike packers will be like, no, no, man, a real bike packer only uses paper maps. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, uh, did I hear like maybe some organized events are like trying to organize it where it's like a paper map only type oh, of thing? wow. Okay. I may have misheard that, but... Maybe kind of like orienteer racing type thing, right? Where you have a map, yeah, and all yeah. that. so it's yeah. kind of similar, but on bikes. Yeah, for sure. So I think there's there was some sort of organized thing in North America for that. Oh wow, I have to look at that. Be, that sounds interesting. Yeah. So in the early tours in New Zealand, were you kind of on a lot of road, or was there like dirt road a lot, gravel trails? What kind of things were you riding? It was kind of a combination, just because uh, even back then, like you could find routes that were on gravel roads. And some trails in New Zealand, so you didn't really need 
knowledge of like GPSing or anything like that because oh, okay. they were pretty well established on maps. But I would say it was still probably 70% pavement maybe. Okay. There was a lot less tourist traffic back then. I hear now like on some roads you do not – like you just – it's not good to be on those there just because there's so much in the peak season there before mm-hmm. COVID at least – there can be so much, uh, so much traffic. Yeah. Well, two years ago, I rode the Alaska Highway um, up into Yukon or down towards Edmonton after, and you know, people really warned me about it. But it just happened to be that that was our first big COVID year, and there were no RVs going up to the U- uh, to Alaska from the U.S. So there was minimal traffic. But I mean, I had heard mm-hmm. that it's nuts. Like you got to be careful because there's a lot of traffic, and you know, when you have transports and RVs passing side by side, yeah, there's not much space really- for a bike. <laughs> Nerve wracking for sure. So, but it was the perfect year to tour. It was, man, it was perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you look back and you're like, oh my God, you're so, you're just so lucky to be able to take advantage of that and experience that. Well, I think on top of that, just as Canadians, like, you know, with this pandemic and stuff, just our country's so big that we have this ability to, even during a lockdown, like where, you know, where the country shuttered its borders, we, we still have one of the biggest places in the world to tour and explore. Around, yeah. So I can ask you here. What piece of advice would you give to a younger you that was going on the tour for the first time? I think I was over planning. I probably still do that is over plan. Mm-hmm. You know, everything seems more doable and easy when you're sitting in your office <laughs> or on your computer at home. Whereas yeah. you spend all this time planning something. Like I remember New Zealand just going through like all my, I, I almost had like a day-to-day itinerary oh, wow. plan resume type of thing going. It was like, Oh, day one, I'll ride here. Day two, I'll ride here. And you realize like it just doesn't work out that way all the time. Like you're tired, you're more tired or you want to see something else that you heard locals tell you about. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I'm still guilty of that. Like I spend like so much time, for instance, like just our last trip in Colombia, planning like a million different types of rides on the GPS because I just didn't think I'd want to do it there. Okay, And you realize that. 80% 80% of that is like kind of almost kind of wasted time because you don't end up doing it. <laughs> yeah. So I think a little less planning is what I would probably advise to myself back then and still my current, yeah. my current uh, and, self. And I guess like things happen, like you get a flat tire and now you're, you're or, or two or three in a day and then you're stressing that you're not going to hit your objective and, you know, all these things start to like impact you mentally, like not like that in, in a like a destructive way, but like, it does affect you because you've you've got this big plan, and so by just being a little more free and easy to go, I guess that's the that's the key, right? Yeah, yeah. I think um, like for now, like what I'll, I just think about is having a general kind of like it's good. To, like for me, I would plot. I still plot a route and have a general idea, but yeah. like maybe not plot so much so much that the fact that I I feel like I'm spending more time planning a trip than actually on the trip. Yeah. <laughs> After New Zealand, did you do what kind of bike touring did you do after and where did you go? Yeah. So that kind of opened the floodgates. So I think the following summer I cycled, I started in Jasper, Alberta. Nice. And I cycled to Santa Barbara, California. Like down the so Pacific kinda, Coast kind of thing or through along yeah, the big divide? Yeah. Or? That's, uh, no, there was no divide then. <laughs> that was uh, down the Pacific Coast road. I think it's like Highway 1 or something, which mm-hmm. I still think is. I mean, when it comes to like classic kind of touring, that still is like, I still hear people say they really love that tour because it's just, it's so beautiful down the West coast of the U S and 
And I've had a lot of people say that that is a perfect, perfect first tour, you know, like, because it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really beautiful. It's safe. It's, um, you know, there's tons and tons of places to, to get help or food or hotels. If you need to get a night off the road, everything is there and there's lots of other people touring it. So you're always going to meet people. Yeah. And I think they still have them, but back then they had like hiker biker sites at the campgrounds. They yeah, were they like do. $5 and. Wow. I was just like, why can't we have more of that here? That's like Canada needs more yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. My but, buddy, uh, yeah. a guy, he was on the podcast. Oh, way ages ago, like in the first three or four or five episodes. Uh, Scott Sherrick, he's now biking in the US. And yeah, he has been posting about hiker biker sites and it's still a thing. I think maybe they're seven bucks or $12 or something. They're, they're relatively yeah. cheap. So. And they were <clears> great <throat> because they were away from everyone else. You had like your own big open area and it was more quiet. And then, yeah, I couldn't believe because I come from Canada and like you, you go like as just a cyclist, I'd show up for a campground in BC at a park or something. It'd be like $40 mm-hmm. and it was just ridiculous. And people in the RV was paying the same price I yeah. was. There are a few sites. Like um, I remember when my wife and I cycled to Quebec City, we passed a campground. We actually didn't stay that night because we wanted to go like 30, 40 kilometers further still. And uh, so we ended up wild camping in a park. But this campsite, kind of just on the edge of Ontario or into Quebec there along the St. Lawrence, um, yeah, it had $10 a night for bikes. But you don't see that yeah, often. That's, 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 that's a rarity. Like, no. Yeah, we don't have that in Ontario at all. So some, no. ra- some ways I see why people like on some of the routes I even developed just end up, uh, quote, air quote, kind of wild camping because the parks are just not conducive to, you know, somebody just wants to show up at 11 o'clock at night put up their tent, sleep, and then kind of leave in the morning. I can understand even if, you know, they're, they have some disposable income, they don't necessarily want to just fork over yeah. what an entire family is paying for, for like the weekend. Yeah. And like, I don't know why Canada, we have such a big country. And like, you look at like Scandinavia, Sweden, Dan- I think even Finland has the kind of open policy, uh, the Allmansraten, as they call it in Swedish, which means all man's rights to, to use land. As long as you're like, a hundred meters away from the house, you're only staying less than 24 hours. There's, there's some rules to it, but you're allowed to, there's no trespassing per se. Even if somebody has like an apple orchard, I think you're allowed to eat some apples, but you know, within a personal consumption <laughs> amount, you're not allowed just to like pick all their trees clear and then go sell them, uh, you know, but, and even Scotland, Scotland has, go ahead. Yeah. Scotland is the right to roam. Uh, yeah. We could do an entire podcast on <laughs> the way North America is kind of set up there. Yeah. All right. Let's start. Land it. Process, yeah. <laughs> I haven't prepared for this, but let's do it. <laughs> I know from designing routes in Ontario, like sometimes when I see a no trespassing sign or something, you actually have to go and sometimes look at, is this actually their land? And sometimes I found that it's actually a right away oh. and people have just put up a, put a sign gate. and yeah. yeah, it's still like, like what we would call, say like a road allowance. Mm-hmm. So that's still public usage on that land but uh, oh wow that's something i never thought of yeah yeah let's jump forward so you were saying that uh sorry we got we got derailed there you're talking about jasper to uh to the u.s along the pacific coast and uh how was that like getting onto a, a full road tour after something like new zealand yeah i love that tour again i finished that tour wanting to keep going it was just it was so amazing like Oh, just all the coastline and, and meeting a bunch of cyclists along the way and just an entire summer of just where you, again, you don't have much to worry about other than just mm-hmm. finding food and shelter. And the, the, the sense of freedom that that allowed was um, almost intoxicating. Mm-hmm. And so like, you just like, again, I finished that tour saying, 
I just don't see myself traveling in any other way anytime soon. I guess that was kind of the end of the tour was because you had to go back and either start working or back to school studying or something, right? Yeah, yeah. I, like I had set a, like a, a finished place. So I had to definitely fly home and start kind of almost start my nutrition career at that point because I had finished all my uh, my master's degree and it was time to like become a dietitian and like start mm-hmm. making some money. And was it kind of like a, it was like a little bit of a bummer going, oh, I can't just keep biking and. Yeah, there's always that. Uh, I think some people brought it up. It's almost like that post-trip blues. I mean, some people use the word use the word depression, but that's pretty. I think that's a little more than it actually <laughs> that actually is. But you you come home into the real world, and it's it's the real world, right? Yeah, yeah. I I, I lived abroad for for a good fifteen or so years, and mm-hmm. every time I came back to Canada, it was like depressing. I wasn't in depression. Like it's a good way of saying it. Like, and you know, I'd go to the bar with friends and. They'd just be talking about hockey and wanting to drink beer. And I'm like, man, let's go to a club with girls and this. And like, it was just a different <laughs> mentality here, you know? And it was just like Canada's little bubble Canada. And, and, um, which I find has changed a lot. Like, as, you know, as, um, globalization and stuff, people are more aware and travel more. But back in the early 2000s, people really didn't travel that much outside of Canada unless it was an all inclusive trip to like Dominican or something. I think you become with this type of travel too, especially overseas, you become more tolerant and understanding of different perspectives and different cultures. So when did you bike tour in uh, Myanmar? Oh, Myanmar. Because it's only opened up in the last not so many years. Yeah, I think it was probably about a, it's probably been almost a decade now, I think. I can't exactly remember what year, but uh, like my partner who I met and we had started traveling more by, by bicycle as well. So we had spent quite a bit of time in Southeast Asia, like Thailand, Laos, Mm -hmm. uh, Cambodia, and Myanmar was always this kind of mystery. It is. And when we first, yeah, when we first started touring in Asia, it wasn't really practical to get there or anything. But then they started offering more flights out of Thailand. And also you can now get, at that time, you could get a month, a month visa. So we finally said, okay, it's about kind of time that we check out this country that we hear so much about. And, uh, Again, <laughs> no GPS, just this like kind of like shitty kind of local map. Yeah. For me, like me and our maps were kind of, <laughs> as you can imagine, not uh, overly detailed. Just a couple pencil um, lines on a paper. <laughs> yeah. But we made it around and oh, what an experience. Like just the people there were so, oh, it's such a cliche to say, like overly friendly, but just so not like just non judgmental and mm-hmm. to us at least. And, uh, we could just pull up hungry to like really any household and the family would cook us food. And, and, um, I mean, there are pros and cons. There's, uh, the areas that we were allowed cause you couldn't go everywhere back then. Yeah. And probably not, not now either. But, I think you uh, still can't go everywhere. Was, yeah. Yeah. And there was quite a bit of environmental degradation. A lot of the forests have been cleared. So it was pretty hot and dusty, but you know, the ruins of Bagan are just a once in a lifetime experience. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just some of the other sites. And so it was like, that was like one of our most raw kind of touring, touring experiences. Amazing. And I think in Myanmar, I, I believe you still can't wild camp. You have to stay in hotels. Did you guys, I know, I know people do, but like. Yeah, we didn't bring our tents cause it was just, it was just easier to get guest houses and things like that. But we were actually surprised at the time. Uh, it was actually more expensive than in places like Laos and Thailand. Because I think it was just so government controlled. Yeah, that and you they had to stay in certain hotels like, too. 
Yeah. So they were collecting more money than um, if it was just like private ownership. Yeah. Yeah. And is that the same kind of timeline where you went to Sri Lanka or? Sri Lanka was before that. So slightly before that. And uh, we had some friends that had told like a year before then had cycle tour to Sri Lanka and said, this is like a viable winter. Cause we were always looking for winter escapes. Okay. Cause we're not overly always thrilled about spending entire winters here in Ontario. Especially in Southern but, Ontario. Uh, I mean, you don't even have tons of snow to at least get out snow. Yeah. And, and it's getting worse all the time. Like this, the anyways, yeah, it's just with this freeze thaw all the time and, and everything. It's not that great, but uh, so they convinced us to go to Sri Lanka and it was always, it was almost my, like my test, like how, cause Sri Lanka is really, population dense yeah like it's got the population of canada and obviously a much much smaller space and i was like okay it'll be a good test to see what kind of chaos i can take which was great because now i know i can never go to india or something like that because that was kind of my limit <laughs> but is uh, it is, is sri lanka that populous is it really that many people oh yeah i think it's oh, wow. it's 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 well over uh, 30 over 30 million wow okay i didn't so, realize it was that much yeah insane yeah but great, like surprisingly, a fair amount of wildlife in something so small with so many people. And the food was incredible, like all the vegetarian curries and things like that. And again, um, and are you a vegetarian or no, no, but no. I mean, I'm more than happy to eat whatever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I appreciate all foods. So that's, that's another great thing about us traveling. Like we both love ta- trying new foods and are open to trying pretty much anything. Yeah, well, I, ha- uh, I had heard so. from people saying too, like if you're in India, and I'm guessing it's, it's similar in Sri Lanka, you know, the vast majority are Hindu, they don't eat a lot of meat. Yeah. And if you're eating street food, you know, stick to what the locals eat, eat vegetarian, because you don't know if that meat you're going to buy has bacteria because it's been sitting too long or whatnot. And people always talk about, you know, getting stomach ailments and, you know, that can be avoided for the most part by eating the, the local cuisine that's like vegetarian and and hoping you don't get dirty water. <laughs> yeah, I know. I agree. Yeah. If you kind of stick to where like, like if a place like you pull up for lunch and there's a lot of like locals hanging around and eating, you probably know it's probably better quality. True. Whatever that. I mean, I still longer trips like that. I always usually get one case of something. There's just kind yeah, of how it goes. It happens. It. Yeah. And what some people don't realize here, like I want people to rethink this because People say, oh, all those foods in these countries, like the preparation's worse and it's a lot less safe. But think about it. If you tour for six weeks, you are likely eating out, if you're not camping, six, like three, four times a day. Like if you do that, in, like even right. in Canada, you're probably going to get a case of food poisoning just by you sheer could. volume mm-hmm. of the amount of exposure you are to having someone else cook for you. Yeah. And I lived in Malaysia for a while and like, and I traveled a lot in Thailand and uh, Mm -hmm. even Cambodia, you know, which is definitely a much poorer country for the region. And Mm -hmm. I never, ever got food poisoning. I got it once in like a remote, well, the island of Lombok in Indonesia. Mm -hmm. But in all those years there, the only ever time I got food poisoning was once, you know, and guaranteed. And, you know, I ate out all the time because it was cheap to live in Mm -hmm. Malaysia and eat out compared to Canada. Never got sick. So you're you know? pretty lucky. I think I have a bit of a sense of stomach sometimes uh, <laughs> when I'm traveling, but uh, I, mean, I might have just got lucky too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Like you said, though, eat at places where people go. You you know, avoid the places that like. Well, I mean, I and you can use your you you know your spidey sense. Like sometimes stuff just us. Uh, you know, if that meat, if it's like 35 degrees and there's like a, a pot of meat things sitting in like a, you know, under a heat lamp or. 
mm-hmm. or something like that. And you're a little later for lunch, like two o'clock, then you, sh- you know, it's a good point. Probably, yeah, <laughs> you should probably move on. <laughs> what is the longest tour you've done? My girlfriend and I did, yeah, Southeast Asia for I think three and a half months. I think that was like 2009, okay. somewhere around there. So we did Thailand, Laos, yeah, Thailand, Laos, and Cambodia. And that was, um, yeah, that was a great tour. Yeah, it was amazing. And it was yeah. also before Laos has kind of changed a bit. But, but back then, Laos was definitely a lot more just opening up more. Yeah, and also man. Laos, a little more. Laos awesome. Yeah. Awesome. What a yeah. place. Cambodia, I don't know. I don't know how it would have been touring 2009. Like, I know li- I lived yeah. there for about a year, I guess, a little bit less than a year and just mm-hmm. a, a few years back, just before we came to Canada in 2019. And, you know, there's so much Chinese construction in Cambodia, Chinese money flowing and big construction yeah. products. The roads were absolutely yeah. horrendous, dusty as all hell. Yeah. Um, That's when we actually used a bus a few times because it okay. was without like, again, with just kind of not a great map or whatever and not that much experience. And I mean, just sticking to the main roads there, there yeah. was definitely, definitely some... Uh, not so fun times. <laughs> yeah. And even Northern Lao now, when you go near the border areas, the Chinese money starting to flow in and construction projects. And uh, and I've heard they built like the Chinese built a, like a full on rail, like a rail system in Lao. Yeah. Yeah. They're putting like a high speed yeah. rail, man. Like it's insane. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Lao can't afford it, unfortunately. And But anyways, let's not talk about China. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thailand's awesome though. Did you go up north at all? Like towards uh, Chiang Mai and... Yeah, yeah, we did the, uh, I think it's called like the Golden Triangle or whatever. So super, yeah, super beautiful, but oh, the roads are so steep there. Oh, man. Incredible inclines. 30% but, uh, the best plus, thing about yeah. It, oh, yeah. And there's really not too much traffic and a lot of traffic was just like kind of scooters. So not a big super deal. Super good. Yeah, they're, they're really respectful, yeah. I find. Yeah. But the best thing about Thailand is the, is the night markets. Oh, you can feed yourself for $5 and be stuffed on like... Oh, just the amazing food there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love yeah. traveling in Thailand. I did the Mei Hong San Loop, which I guess starts in Chiang Mai and kind of goes through Pai. And then, um, yeah, we did that as well. Yeah. It's so nice. Yeah. And yeah, like yeah. you were saying, the, the inclines, it's, I mean, they're, they're big, but it's on the hairpins where you like, you're coming up to a hairpin. You're like, Oh my God, the road's going there. Like <laughs> in a matter of like yeah. one hairpin, you're going up by like 10 meters or something. It's, it just seems massive. Uh, but I also think up there they didn't put enough switchbacks in. Like, you know, no. in Europe where you can kind of get in a groove there, it's like, oh, we're just going to build like one switchback and then make it straight up for, for this like 25% incline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, some, that yeah. was some tough riding. I did it on my folding bike, It was, but it was sick. It was amazing. Oh, wow. <laughs> Let's change over a bit and talk gravel. I guess you were always kind of a gravel biker in the sense that you, you used a mountain bike a lot for your touring and mm-hmm. – uh, I guess it's just a, it's kind of an escape from paved roads or was it kind of a, what, what led to this like gravel bike? Yeah, I think there's two progressions. We, um, so we went on a tour in Vietnam and it was the first time we actually tried using GPS navigation. Okay. And we were just sold because we were blown away what we could like kind of better plot and follow and figure out where stuff was. So more of the back, like the back country roads in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of like, wow, you know, now we're really being able to explore different areas and know exactly where we're going and getting lost a little less. Uh, and you so kind of want to do that in Vietnam because Vietnam's insane for traffic. Like, oh, it's- yeah. Yeah. One of, I'm one of the greatest things. The first time I ever plotted anything was plotting from like the Hanoi area in yep. northern Vietnam to like our first couple days. 
And I was like, oh my God, there's just no way I c- we could have figured this out on a paper map up there. So I was like, wow, we're sold. So we finished that tour Amazing. with a little more ideas of what we wanted to do in the future. And then we started hearing more about this. Like, I think there's a website most people know about, bikepacking.com kind of came online and they were posting routes and things like that. So there was actually more knowledge about that. And with my girlfriend and I always kind of had a mountain bike background. Right. So there's always been that kind of enjoyment of riding on non-paved surfaces and also just you know a lot of places were getting busier too with traffic um so we were looking for a winter destination a few years ago and we saw a route plotted for uh costa rica yeah and it it was a it was like a one-way route because i think it was more designed for people doing a long-haul trip but we looked at the area and we were like "Ah, we could probably figure out a loop just like a a month-long loop here and build it to there so we plotted something and went there and it was our first like kind of dedicated, mostly unpaved kind of like tour. Yeah. And uh, we were just, again, just blown away. It was so much fun to be on these like kind of back, back country, you know, cow pass and just gravel roads in Costa Rica and, and just being away from everything and just seeing the nature up close that way. And uh, I think it was that trip we were like, I don't think we, we could, but we're not that interested in going back to just, you know, the more kind of traditional cycle touring. Mm-hmm. Obviously nothing wrong with that at all, but I think any trip we would plan from going on, we'd be looking at also including some more, you know, dirt and gravel roads and trails. Yeah. Yeah. And it really depends yeah. on situation too. Like I, I, I agree with you hundred percent, but you know, we just had a baby and now I'm thinking, okay, so, yeah. um, well, I'm looking at rail trails now more, right? So I'm kind of focusing on saying, how yeah, can I, how can sure. I tour with my wife and baby, but I don't really want to be on that much pavement. I'd like the dog to be able to run alongside us on a, like a bike attachment and um, take it nice and easy. When the dog wants to rest, it jumps in the trailer or whatever and pull the baby, you know, and you can't do that on insane single track. Not safely. Yeah. I mean, on the flip side, it almost makes you almost overly sensitized to traffic now. So if you do get on a busy road, you're like, oh my God, how the hell did I do this? I got to get off this road. What was I? <laughs> I was so dumb, young when I, yeah. I was so dumb when I was younger. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas before you're like, uh, that's just the way it is. Yeah. 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 So, and um, yeah, I think, I mean, that same year we also like uh, did a tour in uh, Southern Portugal, which was again, uh, that I think had more pavement, but that was uh there's so many of the, like the roads there, just those small little European roads to the country where mm-hmm. like you would see one car every two hours or something like that. So it kind of felt not that much of a detour from like bikepacking because you're kind of more away from the, the major roads that way. Yeah, we were so hooked. We actually went back to Costa Rica the next winter and designed like a full on bikepacking route in Costa Rica that uh, people can actually now find on bikepacking.com. And has there been a lot of feedback on that? Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, the last couple, you know, winters because of COVID probably would have seen more people, but there's definitely been a lot of people who've done that route. And I've heard like from some cyclists that go down there and they're now like passing a bunch of like bike packers in oh, that so part cool. of Costa Rica. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, we were talking about bike packing and I guess since you always used the mountain bike, it was kind of a, the natural progression to more and more um, gravel roads and off-route type things. What kind of bike do you use now? I my primary touring bike now is like I have a like a drop bar kind of gravel bike, but uh, I've kind of souped it up so it's got uh, the 650B wheels with the I can fit two point ones in there, and then oh, I put nice. on I put on like super super lush uh, GRX kind of uh, 
gearing. So mm-hmm. like a 4630 up front and a 11, I think four eleven forty eleven forty two on the back. Okay. And I re- I really did that because we were going to Columbia and I knew it was just going to be <laughs> relentless That's on awesome. the climbing. So. I, I'm in the same situation right now because I got my, my gravel bike has a 4831. It's the GRX 800 and an 1134 on the back. But I just read about yeah. that. You can actually fit a 40 or 42 on it. It says you can't. Shimano doesn't says that it goes max is 34, but you can. So I'm looking to change that up because there's definitely been times on – the log drivers, well, it's bike, uh, BT 700 mm-hmm. and, um, even the routes I've created where, man, it's hard to get up those hills on a 34 tooth. Like you're really struggling. Yeah. No, I, I could tell you for sure that it does work. Uh, I mean, there's a few gear combos that aren't great, but those aren't usually ones that you use that often anyways, okay. like small, small, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's another great thing about the bike packing progression is that when the, like kind of more of the adventure bikes came out, they had the ridiculous gearing. It was like, do they think anybody's going to be climbing at all? So you're getting better, better options for that yeah, now. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely, definitely improving. Yeah, I still don't think I may have the perfect bike because I still think, like, in some ways, you know, that kind of, I don't know, almost like the hardtail mount, a little more mountain bike style with where I could put like fatter, kind of fatter rubber in there might be because I think there's some places like I would get, get killed, like if I ever thought about like doing the Baja divide or something like that. Yeah. You're going to want three inches. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So my buddy was uh, a buddy of mine was just trying to cycle it. Him and another friend were going to do like thousand kilometers together. And then that guy was going to turn around. Anyways, after about three days, he's like, I I can't do the Baja divide on a gravel bike with like 44 tires. He's like, yeah, I'm making like 20 kilometers a day. I'm getting on the roads. (laughs) I mean, as a, as a route developer, I think one of the things people need to remember is actually listen to the advice (laughs) when it comes to stuff like that. Cause no one, like no one would tell him that that was a good wheel setup. Like, yeah, it just like, or it was going to work, but yeah. I think that's a really good point. Cause like even, even you, I I contacted you before I ever came and did the BT 700 Mm -hmm. and I was asking like about gravel bikes and stuff. And you said, yeah, you, if you have 45 tires, put them on. Cause I remember I was like, do I use the forties or should I put 45s on? You're like, if you got them, put them on. And, and I mean, on a gravel bike, the BT 700 eats your body alive. It just destroys you, but it's doable. It is totally doable. Um, but like you said, I think Theo, like Theo Kelsey had it dialed in with his 2.6 inch tires on a, on a rigid mountain bike, you know? Yeah. That just proves that like you're not necessarily faster by going skinnier because yeah. he's got the fastest time on the route. And, uh, Fucker. Those, those are pretty, <laughs> yeah. He beat you like by two like hours. one day after you finished. Yeah. yeah. Well, so. I knew that was going to happen because I started it early. I'm like, there's a good chance somebody on the grand depart type, you know, starting on that day beats me. It was what it is. Yeah. What's your setup now? I'm assuming you don't pull the trailer too much anymore. You did mention that the, the Bob hasn't been used in a while. No, but uh, I'm gonna be honest. On longer trips, I'm still kind of a rack kind of guy. So I have like I have like a roll bag at the front, and then I'm still not a total minimalist. I still have trouble getting stuff down. So I have a rack, and then I have these. Uh, Arkel makes these really beautiful mini kind of panniers. Yeah, they do. That are lightweight. They weigh nothing, and they hold up, and they're waterproof. So I use those, and then and that kind of frees up the top of the rack if I need to like strap anything. Yeah, our well, also makes a really cool seat pack there. That one that's, it's kind of like, it looks like a sideways pannier and man, you could just access everything without having to dump it every time, which is something I hate about seat post bags. 
yeah, I have a few of their bags and always being pretty happy with them. But uh, again, I can prove that you can still bike pack with like, you know, panniers and, and that. And I know some people still do it with trailers, so that's fine too. There's no yeah. set like, there's like no you have to like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, somebody out there will criticize somebody, especially if it's on Facebook, but that's just what you expect mm-hmm. kind of now on social media. So, I mean, you just, you do you, you know, I like, I love that saying where people say you do you just do what you want to do. Don't, don't worry about other people. If you're comfortable, do it. I guess with a with a rack though and pannier system, like you said, you're using. You just want to make sure that those bites, uh, those bolts are are strong. They're hardened steel and also not seized. Yeah, and also just uh, daily maintenance. You know, my girlfriend. We were touring in Colombia, and she was also using a, a, a rack and pannier system. But the back of the, those panniers were plastic, and they were just like bouncing off the rack system, and it was driving us nuts. I'm like, I can't. We can't hear the birds <laughs> if the rack. So <laughs> just. We had to improvise a way just to make it a little more silent that way. Yeah. Like I understand. I totally get where people are traveling light with like minimal bags and stuff because it, it does make things way easier. Mm-hmm. And it also forces you to like just not bring the crap that you don't need as well. And what's your what's your packing setup? I guess like since you're using a front roll and a couple like uh, I guess you'd almost call them front panniers on the back, right? The typically smaller ones. Um, how do you pack your gear? Uh, so on the front goes the tent. If I'm have a tent and uh, tent and my uh, I now use like a quilt style sleeping bag. Nice. So that that packs really small. Um, so that, that those two things those are kind of go up front. And then if I'm using uh, the panniers, yeah, obviously all the other stuff like cooking gear and and clothes and things like that. I do sometimes travel without the uh, the rack and panniers, so I would use a traditional kind of like the longer seat bags. But for me, I find that's more like when I'm not uh, when I'm not camping and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I have uh, have to carry a lot less stuff, and I find uh, I don't need the the pennies and stuff become an overkill with that. Yeah, yeah. I'm always kind of a uh, not sure how much I love the seat post bag and handlebar roll. Just I mean, handlebar roll is okay because if I have my sleep set up packed in there. I only take mm-hmm. it off at the end of the day to set up my sleep kit. You know, like that's it. It's, it's yeah, got exactly. one purpose. But that back one, man, every time if you're like, oh, I need a jacket. Next thing you know, the jacket's <laughs> stuffed under something. You got it. Yeah. And, um, and my tent, I don't have a bikepacking specific tent yet. And it would take up my whole entire seat post bag. And then I'd have to stuff stuff around it. Well, when it came time to take out the tent, I ended up having to dump the whole entire bag because it was like it was just wedged in. And, you know, like you said, if, if weather and, you know, if it's raining and stuff, it's just it's miserable. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it could definitely help to have some sort of frame bag where you can stick stuff that is heavier and then also just that you would need quick access to, like tools and things like that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a couple lightweight racks now made of like carbon fiber. Um, there's the Arrow, Arrow Pack or Arrow, whatever they call it there, the ones that sell a mech. I see the ads all the time now. I know that they've started um, – you know, if it's a neat little rack where you can strap on a dry bag, which is kind of cool, like, and it's made really minimal. Oh, yeah, I've seen so, that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I thought about that. I'm like, oh, that could be a great place to store the tent because I don't know about you. Do you bivy at all? No, I've never been in a bivy. Yeah. See, I did in the army and I was like, okay, <laughs> it's doable. But I mean, I've, I've used the uh, the emergency bivy for, for like the BT-700, but mm-hmm. it's not exactly, you know, <laughs> you're not glamping, <laughs> that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> Do you have a dynamo on your bike? I don't. Yeah, I don't do a lot of night riding. So I'm, okay. I'm more like, I'm going to be honest to you, I'm still like kind of a traditional kind of cycle tourist yep. kind of style. Like I ride during the day and we find a place to 
stay or camp at night. And yeah, fair enough. I just we we wake up and I'll never. I'm in no danger of ever setting a, a fastest known time on any of my routes or any of uh-huh. <laughs> anyone else's routes. So yeah. All right. And uh, so I'm guessing power banks and just recharge when necessary and go with that, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Do you use drop bars or flat bars? Yeah, uh, mostly drop bars for touring. Um, I did take my like kind of a full-on mountain bike to Costa Rica just because it's so rough there. Okay. And, ba- and like dusty and kind of rutted. So I was just like, oh, my hands will get killed. So uh, I had to figure out a way to make my lush kind of specialized dual suspension mountain bike work for bike packing. <laughs> it's not ideal, but it, it did kind of work. I was, I mean, it was super, super fun having like way more comfort. Yeah. Um, but I just don't know with that bike how I would get away with like a really longer tour where I mm-hmm. need kind of more space. What is a, what is your specialized full suspension bike? Uh, it's a, like an Epic. So, okay. Oh, so it's got um, the brain though. Yeah. I mean, at least it's a, it's a good, it does. as far as full suspension goes. Yeah. But the problem with the brain is that you, you, you actually can't just lock it out. Right. So if you had a, like I had a seat, I had a seat bag. And so I had to actually pump in a crap load of air into the shock because like mm. every time I would go over a bump, like the, the bag would rub off the rear wheel. Okay. So yeah, these, that type of bike is definitely not designed for <laughs> having stuff on the bike. That's mm-hmm. kind of like, I have a really awesome like gravel bike set up and I have a like super awesome, incredible mountain bike, but it's I don't want to buy another bike, but I still don't have like almost like the perfect bike. Yeah, yeah. What uh, what gravel <laughs> so, bike are you using? Uh, I have a Diamondback. There was a few. What is a it? A few called? years ago, they came a Diamondback. Oh, Diamondback. Okay. Yeah, yeah. A few years ago, they came out with a. A few years ago, they came out with like a higher end kind of try a higher end gravel bike. So I decided to try that because it had a lot of. It still had rack mounts and all those kind of things. Yeah, I think they've gotten away from that style of bike that like higher end type of bike now but uh, mm-hmm. similar to my opus yeah 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 there's so many options now yeah. they came out with the carbon fiber one and then they found out it's it's at a price point where people that were going to spend that money are going to go for the major brands you know specialized um giant whatever yeah um, maybe that's that's what happened with diamondback as well maybe yeah. you're right they just found yeah. that they they had to stick to the aluminum frames with good components that isn't a good price point for people that they they know what they're they're going to get good quality then mm-hmm. um, but i mean nowadays aluminum bikes are so fantastic i mean i had yes. friends that had sweet carbon fiber road bikes and then they bought a cheap aluminum one just i don't know why he did it because he was rich and he was like dude this aluminum one is so fast it's so good it's so stiff it's like um so i guess i mean aluminum's gotten really good too yeah and i both of my bikes are carbon and that which always makes you a bit nervous like touring but <laughs> bt sounds like so i'm like come on don't break frame <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i guess as a mountain biker you've kind of you're you're you clip in right yes yeah it's always an interesting one to hear what people do like a lot of people, I think when you see somebody like yourself who kind of grew up traditionally as a the mountain biker, mountain biker, they're, they're more likely to clip in. When you meet somebody who's gotten into bikepacking from the touring, bike touring aspect, they're a lot less likely to, in my experience. Yeah. It all depends sometimes what your goals are. Like I pride myself on being a pretty, pretty good climber and like to make as most of the techie climbs as I can. So being clipped in helps with that for sure. All right. Well, let's talk about uh, route development. Um Okay. I guess BT seven hundred was the first route you created. Yes, I can't actually. I can't remember if it was Costa Rica or BT first. Okay, <laughs> one of them. They're right around the same time. So 
Again, oh, yeah, because we you're were going on it. holiday. Yeah. So kind of holiday and home is kind of interplaying around yeah. each other, right? <laughs> yeah. So we'll say like three or four years ago. Yeah. Okay. And what led to this uh, this desire to create a route in, uh, well, I guess, southern Ontario? Yeah, I think there were two things. We were seeing a lot more routes being created everywhere but Ontario. And we, my girlfriend and I had been exploring a lot of the back roads and unmaintained roads and trails in southern Ontario for a long time. Mm-hmm. And I think it was, there were just a couple of rides we did. And it was like, I mean, what if I just tried to build a route, like, you know, a multi-day route? And publish that or do something with it uh, and then p- put everything together bef- um, and put it out there and then decided what the hell i'll just do a grand apart <laughs> not even okay. knowing anything not even riding the total like the route as is yeah, yet. like you've written pieces yeah 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 so i think i i, I finished the route like let's say like january like it was all plotted and everything and i came up with a website put it there and then posted the grand apart on bikepacking.com, their events page. Mm-hmm. And then like people started signing up and, and, it, and more people started signing up and getting emails. And they were like, because there was nothing for people in, in yeah, Southern yeah. On, like just, Ontario or, or even, even Eastern Canada. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's nothing just out West. Yeah. And people didn't always want to travel or had no experience. So people weren't going to like, well, I'm going to go BC, do my very first bike packing kind of yeah. route like from southern ontario well that's the thing and, right you're not gonna you pay for like in canada is not cheap for flights it's not like you know asia yeah. where you could just fly on a, yeah on yeah a exactly. or that europe too. for that matter and then <laughs> here in canada you're gonna say oh, i'm gonna fly to bc do the epic and what if i just hate bikepacking like you know so better <laughs> to try it out at home yeah i mean so before i knew it um so actually yeah this was before costa rica because we were tra- okay. we were doing our second trip scouting trip in costa rica and I was getting just so many signups for this BT 700 grand apart. And before I knew it, there were like well over a hundred names on the list. Wow. Okay. And I'm like, this is crazy. I had no idea what I was doing. So I was like, Oh, so in June, like the, the first year was July, mid July. And I was like, okay, I better get out there and ride this full route. And I rode the full route in early June and I, I loved it. I was just like, wow, this, I mean, to like, you know, prop myself up a little bit. I was like, I think I've created really something kind of special here because there's so much variety and different mm-hmm. type of riding styles. I mean, to be fair, it's it's actually gotten better in the last few years. Like I've been able to find more stuff and fine tune stuff and take out stuff that pe- everyone universally hated. Yeah. <laughs> so well, I think helped. I remember. Um, I remember Eric talking about that. He said like he remembers yeah. when he rode the route and he met up with you. There was a really rough corrugated little section at the not too far from the start, but that was gone when I did it. So uh, yeah, I don't even know that, what he's talking it, about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually right towards the end, and by that time, everybody. Everybody was pretty tired and just ready to get home. So I was like, ah, it's fun. Like if you're out on a day ride, but I can understand like stuff like that. So it was good to get feedback on that. And then, so I ran the first Grand Depart in July of 2019. And it was just, it was amazing. I was like one of the best, that was one of the best days, mornings I've ever had. Just to see so many people excited about this. Pumped up, yeah. And And just something new and, and just like, it was a beautiful sunny day and, yeah. I think it's got to be some fairly become, special too, because you're you're just all there and people are chatting about their bikes, looking at other people's, you know, just motivating and pumping each other up. And it's, it's just got to be something amazing, right? Yeah. And just like on a side note, anyone who signs up for this year, if we, 
if I can finally again have the one day start, you know, COVID goes down again. Um, I suggest people do not think about leaving earlier or something just to be able to experience that. Yeah. I ran it on a Sunday for a reason. So, so, so people can travel on the Saturday yeah. to get there. And then Sunday morning's a lot more quiet from the town that I leave from. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but some people are tempted to leave, you know, Saturday or something like that, just because, you yeah. know, they live close by and like, well, Saturday, I'm not doing anything Saturday. So I might as well leave. Yeah, but, I mean, uh, I'd definitely like yeah. to join the Grand Depart. And uh, I actually yeah. was talking to a friend about your route yesterday. Um, he gave me a shout, congratulate us on the baby and Christmas and all that stuff. And we, we were talking mm-hmm. about it. He's moving back from BC and he was saying he wants to get over oh, bikepacking wow. and stuff with me. And I said, well, I'm going to be doing this route, but you probably won't keep up with what I'm planning. Uh, <laughs> and he said, <laughs> so he good. actually looked it up while we were chatting. He's like, okay, I'm going to sign up. So I, I think he might be signing up. So that'd be yeah, that's awesome. And uh, I mean, I think you enjoyed it, correct? Oh, I loved it. Like, honestly, Matt, amazing route. Like, I, I can't, I can't say enough about it. And like, I mean, I, I enjoy all aspects of bikepacking. But one, one thing I'm, uh, let me think of how to state this. As a mountain biker, similar to you, like I grew up mountain biking. I love single track. I love trails. And that's something you've done exceptionally well on the BT700 is to integrate as many little bits and bobs of single track into that trail, into the route as, as possible, I guess. And yeah. So for me, it was a great change of pace to go from, you know, grinding gravel for a hundred kilometers and bam, you're into these wicked little trails and, uh, and then, you know, you're on gravel again and then you get towards the national park, um, or up towards, um, Lake, is it Erie? Uh, whatever Lake it is. And, um, and then you're, you know, you're back into some trails. It's hiking, like just awesome. Yeah. So I'm rambling. Yeah. That was my <laughs> primary goal was variety. And not just make it a, like a gravel grind. Mm-hmm. So I know some people get caught out because they're just used to like rail trails, and like regular gravel roads. And they're like, whoa, yeah. there's some, there's some gnarly stuff out here in Ontario. But, uh, and I've got to say that like I, I've been developing some routes here in the Quebec side and your routes have kind of motivated me into how I'm planning my routes. You know, I'm trying to get more single track or even hiking trails at times because just good to get off the gravel and explore a bit, you know, even if it means you have to push your bike up a hill, you're, you're getting to see and explore different aspects of, of the adventure. And so, yeah, thank you, Matt. No problem. And that's yeah, the, I the, mean, the greatest no. thing about the BT 700. <laughs> yeah. The BT 700, it really did start like a boom for uh, like the bike packing scene in Ontario. And I think mm-hmm. Quebec as well, maybe like even from the BT, I just, I've developed three, I think three more routes on the website. And I know so you got Eric the, and Jen. There's, who you, so there's that there's the farmer's folly, which I, I feel like is a little bit of a shrunken down version of the BT, isn't it? Kind of. Correct. It uses like uh, definitely not as challenging, but definitely uses some more of those kind of unmaintained roads mm-hmm. and trail systems. And then you got the GNR, the Hasty Highlander. So I guess oh, there's the, a fourth. Yeah, the no winter maintenance route. So the uh, no winter maintenance route. Every no winter maintenance road that I couldn't fit into the BT, I was like, ah. There's so many more things out there, so I put that out there as well. Okay, and it just brings those together. And I know Eric and Jen, when they, after they finished the BT, they were like, "Wow, like that part of their part of like they're from Ottawa, so Eastern yeah. Ontario has so many incredible, you know, gravel roads and things like that." So they contacted me, um, so I kind of lent them a little uh, kind of support in starting up their route, the Log Drivers Waltz. Yeah, and it's a cool route. Like I, I also wrote it. Yeah. yeah. And they've done an amazing job with like, you know, really promoting it and keeping it going. And 
and making it like, and I know they're, they're doing a grand depart for the first time yeah. in 2022. And, and I well. always tell Eric, I'm like, every yeah. time I talk to him, I'm like, man, like one thing you do really well is social media. Cause you're always posting. And I was like, it's, yeah. it's impressive. Like yeah. I would love to post more about things. I just ran out of time in my day. Like, I don't know how well, yeah. he's retired. So maybe that's why. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's really, he's really passionate about it. Yeah. So great. Yeah. Him and, Jen, I, yeah. and he's hardly retired. He's, he's, he's a very busy guy. I know that. So yeah, yeah their, their route was, it's fantastic. I mean, it was it's so different than the the BT seven hundred. I mean, there was a lot less single track, but that's we just don't have as much single track in this region as as uh, as you guys have down there, you know. So it's I think yeah. because the population is much larger. But that region has a lot more, yeah, a lot more lakes and like kind of more wilderness open areas, correct? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it's just different. It's mm-hmm. it's interesting. I mean, I always judge when I'm riding a route how many times I swear and hate the person that developed it <laughs> kind of dictates how good the route is in the end. So when I'm like, fuck you, man, I'm going to kill you if I ever meet you. It's do It's really good. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing is like this year, I'm actually thinking of doing riding my own, like the, during the grand part, which I haven't done before, oh, okay. but I'm just kind of yeah. scared. It's like, I might have to like go a little in the stealth mode in case people are pretty, pretty upset. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I mean, there was, um, Oh, I mean, I had a lot of issues when I rode your route too. And, and like, that's why I was a little bit bummed when Theo beat me by two hours. Cause I know I wasted hours on like yeah. technology issues. And like I had my dynamo wasn't working. I had to actually cut off the wires when I, my brother came uh. over. He, he's good at all this stuff. So I had no dynamo working for the whole route. I had a, one power bank that was only 5,000 milliamps that, well, and I didn't even have a charger for it. It was just like everything that could have gone wrong. Yeah. It went wrong. You know, I was using a Blackburn hike and camp light for a headlamp <laughs> Oh man! Um, because my dynamo wasn't working and I couldn't mount it on my handlebars or arrow bars and have it plugged in to run. So I had to hold it in my hand on the tops of my gravel handlebars at night when I was going through that, um, that huge single track section there, right? Uh, about 150 K before the end. Yeah. Um, I forget what's called there, but insane. Like and he's like, you did that with a, hand, a light in your hand. I was like, ah, I had no choice. It was either quit or keep going, you know? Like, wow. So, but it's funny when you, when you're, when you're driving, trying to go really fast, it presents a whole different style of challenges. It is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I remember I almost cried when I got off the, uh, the rail trail near the end and go to go through that gorge. I was like, no, I thought I was done. <laughs> I thought there was no more climbing. Like I try not to let up too much. Yeah, and I had no no power left my legs. Yeah, like I yeah. was just some of the weakest inclines. I had to push my bike because mm-hmm. I was just gone. Like there was just yeah. I mean, yeah. Anyways, let's talk. Uh, so, are you from St. Jacobs? I've been meaning to ask. This. No, uh, Waterloo, Ontario, no. which is you know only about a twenty minute drive. So, so. okay. Yeah. So why St. Jacobs is uh, a starting point for so many of your routes? Because from that town, it's really easy to just you're like you're automatically already in the countryside. And it's a really charming kind of little town. It's a Mennonite town, and uh, the lo- the like local businesses there are supportive, and it's just easier to run something from that than starting from a you know bigger town okay. maybe. But uh, yeah. yeah, I've almost I've almost turned like that little town into like a a hub for because now I have three different routes leaving and finishing yeah. from St. Jacobs, so. They're definitely seeing a lot more riders coming through. Which is great. Yeah. Just great for the local economy and kind of gets people like hotels. Sometimes people yep. aren't going to camp the first night and, you know, cafes and it's awesome. I didn't even know it was a Mennonite town. I just thought it was uh, like, you know, it's kind of close to that whole area. But Yeah. So uh, 
Um, if you're lucky, you know, the most traffic you'll see around there are horse and buggies. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, we were talking a lot about the BT-700. So it's just for people. It's now 770. How many kilometers? 770. It's 770, yeah. What's the elevation gain on the route? It's It varies between, depending on who's recording it. seems like I've seen 7,000 yeah. meters and I've seen 8,000 meters. I don't think it's quite 8,000. Yeah, I was closer to 8. Oh, were you? Yeah. So it's. It, I think it depends on... The, the barometric pressure or something like that when you're riding or it could or be yeah it's weird but uh it's so it's let's just say between seven and eight next time i do it i'm gonna run like an e-trex and I'll just leave it in my bag let's and see. i'm gonna and i just want to see like a couple different different devices you know and see what happens yeah but i think that and maybe i also took some wrong turns and had to backtrack so i sometimes there were times where i climbed a gravel road and i get up there and all of a sudden i see a thing on my gps says wrong way yeah. and i'm like oh <laughs> shit. yeah for sure we're all, we're all and then i cruise down yeah. the hill and then i turn and i have to climb a worse hill yeah. and <laughs> when you don't see the red line yeah. anymore you're like oh <laughs> where was the real yeah, turn because gps is are only so accurate and you know when yeah. when it comes to like a road and a trail that's beside it that slowly branches off you don't realize you're on the wrong trail until you know i've already gone a kilometer or so and then yeah then part of me says i should come up with like a uh like a little a little write up on giving people tips on using GPS and stuff because I see everyone seems to have their own horror stories and some of these are preventable. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, for example, some people use the ride with GPS app for navigating, which is great. Yeah. But and then they have the voice person, but sometimes the voice person, I, I don't understand. Like, maybe there's probably a disconnect there somewhere, but they don't say the right turn. So they're just, right. they're like, oh, turn left that here. Is- and then they go left for two kilometers and it wasn't a left there. Cause maybe okay. the trail entrance could be like 15 meters, like beyond that left turn. And it's not, right. I don't think it's that nuanced to pick up that kind of slight little deviation. So it's always. And depending worth, on the device, yeah. like I find, I find Garmin's are really slow to reroute or like yes. if you, you realize you're going wrong and you come back to the route and then you're waiting and waiting yeah, and waiting. And them, then, yeah. so I, by then I've already taken out my cell phone. I've looked at the map. I've zoomed in and I say, okay, I'm, I just start going. And like five minutes later, the Garmin figures out where it is. No, I know my, yeah, my girlfriend's Garmin is slower than my Garmin for some reason and it drives her nuts. But, and I know people have had trouble with Wahoo where they're trying to record one massive ride. Like they're trying like a fastest no time and they're yeah. not stopping and saving it occasionally. And the whole, yeah. the whole computer goes total. Well, that's, that's, that's what happened to Carl yeah. when I was riding with him that first day is he was having issues with the recording on the Wahoo, but I mean, he had a spot tracker, so he was lucky there, but his man, when he, when he lost track within 20 seconds, it was redirected re on, on route again. And. I would just be watching my Garmin yelling and screaming at it. <laughs> and, you know, so, I mean, I guess Wahoo and Garmin have their advantages and disadvantages, the, uh, the long and the short of it. Before continuing on with the podcast, I just want to thank some of the Bike Tour Adventures sponsors. Bike Tour Adventures is proudly sponsored by Redshift Sports. Founded in 2013 by a team of mechanical engineers who happen to be avid cyclists, they've been focused on creating components that make a meaningful difference to the riding experience, such as the switch aero system, the shock stop suspension system, and the kitchen sink handlebar system. I've been using the dual position seat posts paired with the shock stop stem since 2020 and have nothing but great things to say about their products. Use the checkout code BTA15 on their website to save 15%. 
Beginning in 2010 with environmental sustainability as a main focal point, Restrap has been in the bag making business for quite some time. Having used a race bag since 2021, I find their holster system and magnetic buckles to be extremely effective and truly unique. Use the checkout code BTAPOD10 to save 10% at checkout. Lastly, named after the animal that roams the Tibetan plateau, Chiru Endurance Bikes was started by Pierre Arnaud Le Manga in 2009. After noticing the lack of endurance bikes on the market, Pierre used his expertise, know-how, and racing experience to create high-end carbon fiber and titanium bikes for the discerning rider and racer. Thanks, and back to the podcast. What are some of the highlights of the BT700 since we're, we're talking about it? I think a lot of like those unmaintained roads that you just have long been forgotten. I love those because they're kind of gnarly and backcountry style kind of riding. And you you really do feel like you're having a bit of a sense of adventure. And what else? I, I love all the trail systems. I always try to put in some more trail systems if I can. I mean, some of them are optional. So not everyone has to do them as well, which is good. Yeah. And have you have you kind of come down? Is this is this like a more or less a final iteration of the BT seven hundred? You're going to leave it as is, unless you know they go and pave some roads and yeah, I had to. They were in one area this last summer. They were starting to pave it, and I was told from the locals that, I mean, the road itself was a busy gravel road, like probably the busiest gravel road, and now they're paving it without. And they decided to put where was no that. It runs along an area like it's called uh, Duntroon is the area. It's uh, kind of it's after the Blue Mountains area when you're heading south. Okay. Yeah. And you've passed through uh, a provincial park called Pretty River Provincial Park, and it never okay. had the greatest sight lines. It was it was really hilly, like always up and down, up and down. And they've decided to pave it, but pave it without any shoulder. And I was wow. told that like you you really should take the route off this road because like it's. It's it's now going to become even more dangerous just because people are driving mm-hmm. faster on the paved road. So I've had to kind of figure something out with that. Um, and when it's gravel, you had the shoulders and like it's wider. And yeah, now and all of a sudden people just generally maybe don't drive as fast on gravel and probably a little less traffic because mm-hmm. it is gravel. So there's always, I think the hardest part of setting down, almost setting down a fastest no time is because I can't promise that routes will be static. Because you can always approve upon them. Yeah. 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 There's um, something I read about, uh, I heard about, and this is an interesting thing, something you might almost want to consider. Um, I think it's the Hunt 1000 in Australia because they change up the route every year, but they keep it right around a thousand kilometers is they make their fastest time based on average speed. Average speed, yeah. So so that even if the route changes, now your average speed, you know, whether it's 10.25, 10.3, whatever – but I think you might get into an issue there where 0.3 or 0.4 <laughs> might not be a, as enough of a dictation yeah. because who knows. But that's an interesting way to do it because, you know, routes do change and roads get paved and things happen. And how do you – yeah, it's hard to say. And then also it's like, okay, so fastest known time. And then, you know, that really should be like following every inch of kind of a plotted route. But then if someone sends that to me, like I can't have time or patience to go through everyone's, you know, mile by a mile route. So you just kind of, you have to just kind of assume (laughs) or not assume, but like, it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a trust system, you know? Yeah. yeah. What, uh, what is your personal favorite section on the, uh, the BT 700? I think kind of, do you know, remember like the mono provincial park area? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's the area I was thinking about earlier. yeah. Yeah. Because you go through this beautiful park 
And the nice thing about that park is like, it's so beautiful, but the riding through that park actually isn't that challenging. So you actually can really enjoy it. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and then yeah. following that, there is that kind of, you start getting to a really long trail section that I really love. And people kind of, you know, maybe not with the mountain bike background they complain about, but they don't realize like, it's almost all downhill. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, like oh, that's amazing. If you it ride was, that the other way, you're like, whoa! You don't realize like that steady uphill. It the other sucked way. a bit when you're when you're holding a Blackburn light in your hands yeah. the whole time. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I just I, I. What's the most challenging? Well, the most challenging sections probably. Uh, there's some tough stuff up by the Blue Mountains area, just because of the the terrain up there. But I also do think that mono kind of when you're getting further south is really tough because there's. There's no flat sections either, so it's always kind of mm-hmm. undulating one way or the other. Yes. Yeah, the Blue Mountains was, um, I guess, like for me, some of the tougher parts where like some of the descents on the hills, you know, you kind of took an unmaintained road that's no longer in use, that's kind of turned into a trail that has water runoff, yeah. have destroyed the trail as well, and, and you're trying to go down this extremely steep thing on a gravel bike. Like That was tough. Like Definitely mountain bike would have been much, much more helpful. Much easier. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> like there's a couple of things I've gotten off on with the drop bars and that I probably would have just stayed on with the, the full on mountain bike. But uh, I don't. Yeah, I took the, I even took the switchbacks down on the way towards Meaford. I took the switchbacks down the mountain and people oh, yeah. like, rode the switchbacks down there. I'm like, not safely. <laughs> <laughs> what advice would you give to anybody who's looking to to ride the route? I guess that was kind of the big one area. It was uh, come come do the Grand Depart. Yeah, right? I think that's a really good question because um, for a lot of people, maybe not not quite too experienced with this type of thing. I think there's two things. Try to, as much as possible, bring the right gear for the route. Like I always say the best bike is the one that you have. And I don't want for to tell sure. people, but if you have choices between running skinnier tires or fatter tires, you bring the fatter tires. If you have choices between, if you were thinking of it anyways, and adding a little more gearing on your bike to make kills easier, then do it. Like don't not do it. And I think the yeah. other thing is not expect to go fast all the time and, and also be happy all the time. It's not going to happen. There's always, you're going to be miserable sometimes. That's just the way it is. But some people just don't want to get off their bikes. And I don't understand that's not like what the bike packing is really about. Like it's, it's a little more rugged. And if you have to get off your bike and walk 500 meters, it's, you're stretching a different part of your body. It's really, I don't, it's not that big of a deal, <laughs> but I've had a few. And sometimes it's a good rest for your legs, yeah. actually. You know, it's not, a, it's not the end of the world. And I had, I remember I reading one person's blog and they didn't like the PT because there were too many unnecessary hike bikes. I'm like, there's no unnecessary hike bikes. I mean, first of all, if you're, if you're pretty skilled, there actually is no hike bike. You can ride that entire yeah. route almost. There's a couple of things I would never ride, just some drop offs and stuff. Like that just seems silly. And then it also depends on the weather. Like if it's rained a lot, of course in Ontario, some of those roads are going to be flooded. That's that's just yeah. They're back. They're backcountry roads. I mean, <laughs> they're just the way of that. And then yeah, and they usually yeah. hit the valleys and stuff like that. Are you know people don't normally drive. It's like yeah, yeah, exactly. And I don't want. I didn't want the route just to be rail trail and regular gravel roads. That wasn't what I was going after. So, but so uh, what kind of what kind of um, how much time should people plan then? Like. If they're riding this at, let's say, a reasonable place, I think like not a not me or Theo kind yeah. of ridiculousness, but like a normal normal rider. If you want a more comfortable ride but still have a long days, I think five days is a pretty sweet spot for that one. 
And, yeah. uh, okay. Yeah. Kinda, you're hitting like 130, 140K yeah. a day. Yeah. And yeah. I still get a time to like kind of sit and relax a bit. People obviously Maybe people have take a, have a rally co beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People take seven to eight days, and but that's that's fine. It's a little slower than what personally I like, but I that's just what I like. But once you get under five days into the four and three, is where you're really pushing it. And what I have found from comments is like that's where like you have more time where you're probably not quite enjoying yourself as much. Let me ask you a yeah. question here. Um, it wasn't even on my list, but it's something that just kind of hopped into my head um, or popped into my head. You had these, I'm not going to call them ice boxes, but what would you, uh, there was a name you had for them though, but the little resupply boxes along the route at some of your, your trail angels places and stuff. Um, was that kind of a, something you just put there with the hope that at least it would bring, you know, people would be generous enough to put the money back that it costs you in the, out of your pocket and just so it's hopefully sustainable or was that something that you had sponsors give you some money to, to manage? No, that's not, uh, like I don't ask that's kind of up to the people, but I decided to, for the Grand Park to have set aid stations where, yeah, where there's yeah, not many other surfaces around there. And also the great thing about the aid stations is that they offer camping as well. It's a, a it's my ultimate goal to make it more of a fun experience for people and also yeah. to bring like the community together. Cause there's like all these aid stations love meeting the riders and having people stay there and, and part, just part of that atmosphere. So it's kind yeah. of, and uh, yeah, well, I, when I was going through the blue mountains. I, I did stop and I, I saw this box and I was like, what the hell is this? I mean, I think I had heard about these and I opened it and I was like soft drinks and <laughs> granola bars and, awesome. and there was no rally co beer. I didn't know there'd be some in the fridge at the house. I might've even gone in and had one. Uh, I really wanted to try one. And um, so I had a Coke and threw a dollar in and it was all of like literally all the cash I had on my, that was small bills. And man, that could just pick me up. It brought me back to life. And um, so it was a really, really cool thing. Yeah. So I hope to be able to do that again this year at the same spots. I'd like to maybe add one more at a couple somewhere, but uh, but that. And the other great thing about these routes is more yeah. people are, are becoming trail angels. So we have people opening up their properties for camping and uh, oh, stuff like that. I, I don't remember where it was along the trail, but I came out of a, I came out of a trail and it was... Um, Man, in my mind, it was maybe a paved road, but there was a there was a house, some houses, or like a row of houses across the street, and the guy was out um, with a chainsaw and he was going to cut some stuff down or a leaf blower. I don't remember now. Um, I was pretty tired at the time, and I just went over there to ask if I could fill up water, and he's like, "Oh, are you riding the BT seven hundred? And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I am." And he says, "Okay, yeah. Do you want some Gatorade? Do you want uh, do you want any noon or something to put in your bottles?" And I was like, "Seriously?" He's like, "I have friends starting the ride tomorrow, man." He's like, "Let me help you out." And then his wife came out with strawberries. He's wow. like, "Just pick today. <laughs> have a bowl of strawberries." I started eating a bit of strawberries, and she's like, "No, no, no. Finish them. They're all yours." And I left with like two cokes in my pocket. Nice. I had like tablets to put in my water, and I was like, "What just happened, man?" Like, I you know like. And I was at a really close to a bonking point. So it was like, it was one of those perfect times where things just worked out. And uh, the only mistake I made there is I should have actually asked if I could have slept on their lawn for a bit there and charged my phone and stuff because I almost, I almost had a game ender later on, but I luckily found that, uh, that cross country ski, uh, cross country ski resort or whatever it is. And what do you want to call it there? A club? Yeah. Cross country ski club. And uh, the guy was there and hopefully, luckily, charged, uh, allowed me to charge my stuff and lent me a charger and everything. So Yeah. And that, I mean, that puts a smile on my face when I hear about like that kind of community smart support. That's like one of my number one yeah. goals for something like this. That was amazing. Just absolutely luck. 
and, you know, generosity by people and did not expect it. So, yeah, you said you've created a few other routes. How does the BT700 and the GNR compare? Like, I've been wondering because I, I do plan on riding the XL next year. And uh... they're, they're quite a bit different. The GNR is a little more uh, urban just because of the areas it goes through. But it's also got more. It actually has more, as a percentage, trail systems along like okay. the, the river systems that we have here. So it actually, I think it actually has more trail. Um, so that's good. So it's kind of like a nice compliment. And yeah, you could like, because they finish and finish and start in the same area, you can pair them up into some a pretty big ride. That's a, you know, well over a thousand, thousand kilometers. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I think if you, and- if you like riding on trails, you'll definitely enjoy that route for sure. And tell us about Columbia, because you you guys made like I was looking at it uh, just a few days ago. Um, just thought, oh, I should check this out and see what he's done there. And it's a pretty massive trail with insane amounts of climbing, <laughs> which I love. So I hate climbing, but I love it. You know, it's one of those. Yeah, you know, I I don't know. I like I hate going up, but love coming down. So kind of the uh, the yin and the yang to the two. Tell us about it. How did this come to be? Yeah. So in 2019, my uh, partner and I we decided uh, we kept hearing about Columbia and it was getting safer and safer. And we do, yeah, we decided like we, we had to go check out Columbia. I mean, and just by, it was funny. It was like with Columbia, like you could plan. And for some reason, so many of their like mountain roads are all like, you could Google street view them, even like these paths through these farmlands. Really? Yeah. Wow, okay. So we like, Oh my God, there's so much gravel here. Like we're going to have no problem piecing something together. So, uh, yeah, we came up with a route in Colombia that goes through various parts of their Andes. And oh man, what I, I, if anyone's listening to this and, you know, maybe after COVID settles down again some winter, um, and they're looking for like an overseas bike packing trip and a challenging trip, but so, oh, so rewarding. Colombia is, Colombia does not let you down. There's just so much amazing terrain there. It's really cheap. Um, the people are friendly. And like, even, even what we've come up with, like people can go on the BT700 website and see the route that we developed. You could take this route like a million different ways. There's just so much, so much potential there. And you could probably just expand it in like any, any direction you want, because it's such a huge country. Like people don't realize how big Colombia is. It's, 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 it's definitely quite large. Yeah. I mean, most of the good riding terrain there is centered in the mountains because the other part of Colombia is the, the Amazonian flatlands. And, you know, that's not that great <laughs> for cycling, I don't think. Uh, so you need, you need to climb there. You, there's just no flat riding there. And it mm-hmm. was like, I mean, I think we did with some day rides and everything, you know, over four, 40,000 meters of climbing in the, in the trip there. So. Um, yeah, the, the route shows 35, but like, once again, that's not necessarily accurate to what it is because, you know, it's. Yeah, I think it is uh, a I little mean, bit there. Programs yeah. can only, only do so accurate, right? Yeah. But I mean, what goes up must go down there. And there are some epic downhills <laughs> stuff like, cause I had the drop bars. I had to stop once or twice just like, cause my hands were no oh, longer, shit. weren't like, I was squeezing the brake. Like I couldn't open my fingers anymore. <laughs> but <laughs> just like, I mean, we're talking um, like, hour like not like 10 minute descents like you're just you're descending for so long you're like wow this is insane uh yeah it sounds good it sounds yeah. really good is it really what's what's it like to to develop a route internationally as opposed to in your like your home country where you're just you know steps away from it i think the biggest challenge is like 
Because with the BT and all the other routes I have here, I can always tweak them so easy. I can just go look, scout. Right. Like, um, for example, like in Costa Rica, we had it down packed and then an area of Costa Rica became off limits because a geothermal company took it over and they're not allowing cyclists through it. Oh, okay. So now I'm trying to like, okay, how do I reroute through something that I live thousands of miles away and I don't know any local. Without flying there, yeah. yeah. And I don't know any local riders in that area. So um, I've been able to figure that out, but it's a challenge because like things change obviously. And then, you know, I yeah. have to tell anyone going on these international ones, you know, let me know if something changes or don't expect it to 100% work out. Yeah. Whereas like in. It's the same anytime, I guess. Like I remember riding the BT 700 and I shot you a message cause your grand depart hadn't left yet. And I said, Hey, the, the riding in, um, Mac, Mac, McIntyre, McKinstry or oh, something. Oh, McGregor Point. Park, yeah. What's it called? McGregor Point. I said it's flooded through and you have to take the little trail to the right through the woods. And, um, you know, because they had it closed. And, yeah. And now so I've just with communication. And people have told me, like, I didn't see it last year, but yeah. So something like that, I was able to easily reroute around because like a beaver has taken over that trail. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, so that's totally flooded. So it's not a big deal, but, uh, I mean, when you have like overseas, like a huge area that I need to reroute around, yeah. that's that's kind of stressful. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. All right, where was I here? I guess, yeah, I think just like just talking about this and like when you go to Costa Rica or Colombia, like it's, it's just a neat way to, to explore a country and get off the beaten track and get into the little communities that people generally wouldn't otherwise go to, right? Yes, and as you get going, you get more comfortable. I would say you get more comfortable in that country. It, you almost become like one with the country. So it's, it just becomes easier to navigate and kind of live with, with whatever their style of living is. Um, so, I mean, obviously, because you're going to visit a lot of towns that no other, you know, bus tourists are probably going to be, um, you have to be pretty flexible with what you're putting up with and what you're planning on doing. <laughs> And uh, like if you get a little town, you've just had a brutal day and that town's going to have a party that night, then, <laughs> you know, you're you're not going to get a lot of sleep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, And you'll probably get invited if you're like the first foreigner that's been through there in a while. You'll be yeah. like, hey, come, come. <laughs> but I tell I try to encourage as much people who are really now getting into bikepacking and really enjoying it, like try to take an overseas trip at some point because it's a totally different experience and it takes you out of your comfort zone even more. And, uh, yeah. yeah, well, it's just something I was going to mention earlier as I think, you know, COVID, while it's not been ideal for the world at all, one thing that it has done is, is drawn thousands and th- like maybe millions around the world to biking, like where people before might never have gotten on a bike. Now all of a sudden, you know, you go to a bike, any bike shop in Ottawa or probably down there to Waterloo, they don't have inventory. Everybody's bought all the bikes. And that means we have, a whole bunch of people learning to gravel bike, getting off the beaten track, exploring. And, you know, where do you see this with regards to, to world travel and, you know, eventually? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's a stepping stone because I, like I know with my roots in Ontario, like they become so much more popular with COVID because people were not traveling and people were looking for some sort of adventure, but maybe that's a stepping stone. Like more people do those and then, they see these international routes coming up and they might be curious about those as well. Whereas they wouldn't have been before because mm-hmm. they remember what have you even thought about traveling by bike that way? Exactly. Now I just need uh, tourism boards from around the world to pay me 
have to come and develop roots in their country. <laughs> yes. We could do yes. that. <laughs> start promoting it and start a business. So, yeah, the regions of Ontario and, and I mean, presumably Quebec, where, where it's, it's very quite similar in terms of um, geography and um, geology, I guess, as well. Like, I mean, southern Ontario is very similar to the south shore of Quebec and north, central northern Ontario would be pretty much like a lot like the rest of Quebec. What makes them worthwhile bikepacking holiday destinations post-COVID? <laughs> <laughs> I think, or even during COVID, I guess you have challenges without being too challenging. I would say, and I would say with the like a route like the BT, you feel remote without being too remote. So it's great mm-hmm. for all sorts of abilities and various like kind of sites along the way. And I mean, we don't obviously we don't have like the Rocky Mountains or you know the coastline of mm-hmm. France or something like that, like that type of stuff. But I think most people come away from these routes realizing like even those from Ontario is like, wow, I never knew it could actually be that beautiful. Yeah. And I think like, you know, well, okay. Well, the BT seven, like Southern Ontario might not have the lakes and rivers and stuff that, you know, the, my part of Ontario does, but um, like the Hasey Highlander goes through some amazing, amazing like lake areas and parks like Algonquin park and whatnot. And, you know, while we might not have the Rocky Mountains, we definitely have the elevation gain overall, like in mm-hmm. our roots. It's, I would say the elevation's not that dissimilar. You might not have the same, you know, views of mountaintops covered in glaciers, but we do have lakes and rivers that you just don't get out west because they would only have them in the valleys. And yeah, and I would say everywhere with the elevation, sometimes like 10 short, punchy climbs can be a lot harder than one massive pass that you have to pass over. This is. You can't really get in much of a rhythm and with those type of shorter climbs. It's like... That's a good point. Yeah. All right. And um, yeah, so I guess you said you've seen a lot of growth over the last few years just in the BT700. I mean, not being able to do a grand apart until uh, in the last few years the way you'd like to. Um, but you've still seen a lot of feedback on people riding, right? Yes. And some people... Um, just like I loved, it. you know, you get the gratitude of people who are just ama- are so appreciative to have all these routes now that they can go out and explore. Because, you know, nine out of 10 people don't want to or don't have the time to like piece all this kind of stuff together. Mm-hmm. So it's easy. Well, I got, wow, I got a five day vacation already set up for me. <laughs> all I got to do is pack my bags and get on my bike and follow this route. Yeah. And on that note too, I mean, I, I recorded a ride cast on the BT 700 where I kind of went through my own ride report. Um, bearing in mind, I, I did it as a, an FKT. So I, I didn't really stop to smell the roses all that much. Um, but for anybody out there that is looking for, for an, an in-depth talk and just want to listen, uh, you can listen to that, but bear in mind, it's different than somebody who's touring at a, a more casual pace. But yeah, I think it covers a lot of the points of what I liked and what I found great about the route. And I look forward to uh, to riding some of these other routes in the next year or two. Um, this year, this coming year is going to be a little different for me. I don't think I'll be having as much time on the bike as I hope because uh, got other, a new addition to the family. But other pressing matters, little short FKT attempts. Maybe uh, I could do those. You know, a few days here and there. <laughs> and you lost your you lost your FKT pretty quick on the log drivers waltz as well, right? It lasted two months. It lasted pretty much uh, until might have been September or October. So yeah, it was from July. Yeah, it lasted a few okay. months. Yeah, and that was beat by about four hours. 
That one, I don't know. I don't know if I could beat my, I don't know if I could get beat that one. I, I'm sure I could beat Theo's log driver's waltz. Or sorry, BT700. Coming free, Theo. But I'm not sure about the log driver's waltz one. That guy, he crushed it. But anyways, whatever. It's not, it's not just about that. And I like, I like to push my body and that's just the way I do it. Hitting an FKT is nice, but just getting out there and destroying myself is also cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anything I missed that you'd like to talk about? I know you're a nutritionist by trade and, um, maybe you could talk to us about how, how people out there riding these multi-day things can, uh, can focus on, you know, how, how they can manage their eating and nutrition aspects while they're out there. Yeah. I think, uh, I want, I guess with my dietitian hat is like, you know, try not to just eat, uh, gas station food <laughs> the whole time. Butter tarts. <laughs> Can't just eat butter yeah, tarts yeah, yeah, every yeah. meal of the day. Like right? <laughs> I, you know, I love butter tarts, but that's like a one, one a day kind of limit. <laughs> so, uh, trying to find like actual stuff that's going to sustain your body definitely helps. I know some people pack, pack like enormous amount of gels and chews and stuff like that, but. You know, after day one, you're probably going to be sick of those and they're going to end oh, yeah. up giving you gut rot after a while. <laughs> so there's those issues, but uh, acid reflux and all those things. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I don't think I had a normal meal on that entire BT 700 other than Tim Hortons and whatever. Yeah. But like, yeah, when you have that speed, it's tough. I know like Theo, like one of the best moves I've ever seen was he, uh, he pre-ordered like a pizza. So that would save him time. So he would come to it. Like he knew what town he was going to get to. And he like pre-ordered the pizza. So it was ready for him when he got to that town. Oh, That's awesome. What a guy. Smart yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a brilliant yeah. idea. And then if you just have, if you have some way to just fold up the remainder and stuff it under like a couple straps or something, you could just take three, four pieces yeah. with you and just eat them when they get cold later. I think one of the biggest pe- mistakes people make, and I still make it is, oh, I just need to get through this or um, I just want to get to the next town and. Once hunger sets in and you're starting to feel a little shake, it's, it's actually pretty hard to recover from that, like the bonking sensation. Yeah. So if you can eat more regularly, smaller amounts, that's actually in the long run going to probably make you feel better and actually be faster. Yeah. I'll make like these energy balls that are like taste a lot better than like a lot of packaged stuff. And like I'll have those that I could just kind of eat while I'm riding, like just kind of to feel pretty good about um and uh i find that that sustains me a little more so like i'm not because if i get to a lunch spot and i'm absolutely starving and like tired that's a that that's no i like i haven't fueled properly yeah what goes into the energy balls oh i have all sorts of recipes you can think about yeah. okay. <laughs> actually people do you want to share do you want to share one recipe in the links on the show notes so people oh yeah have, yeah like, a little free and i actually have if people cool, go we'll to do. the, B, the bt700.ca website like I have a free like ebook which has like about twenty. Oh, is it okay? Yeah, twenty. Oh, energy okay. Balls. I'll add a link to it then. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, I didn't realize. Yeah, I thought maybe some people can't afford to go and buy a book, but if you you had a recipe, you can share. But I'll just share a link to the the ebook. Yeah, yeah. And, so that's uh, free for anyone to look at. Okay. So. Yeah. Uh, so we yeah. just call them Matt's balls, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do have like awesome. a butter tart themed kind of butter tart ball on there. So. Nice. Yeah. No, that sounds good. I love butter tarts. My mom's French Canadian. Oh, yeah. Like she grew up like it's fan, all about butter. If tarts. anybody's wondering the, why the BT got his name, the butter tart, it's just because they're so ubiquitous now. Like they're everywhere. Like like any country store, any any even like some gas stations are now like you can have these. Like, it's a very tart. regional thing. It though, is to yes. Ontario and Quebec. Yeah. Like yeah, 
Yeah. It's definitely something you don't really find. Well, I mean, you can find it. It's like a Nanaimo bar. You'll find them out here, but it's you don't find them everywhere, you know? No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And um, anything you'd like to share that I kind of missed out on that uh, might be relevant? Yeah. I think only one thing is like other, we've also started like um, uh, bikepackingontario.com website oh, and, yeah. and people can find all sorts of, all sorts of routes on that as well. And which, and the good thing is now we've kind of linked up so many of these routes. We like in Ontario, we now have like 6,000 kilometers of linking routes. So that to me, that's like a destination. Like, you know, my goal, like it would be great to see people from U S and even Europe and stuff like, it's like, wow, I can go over and ride like a month at a time. Like, you know, on all these and routes. do you look at like possibly having hosting a grand departs at some point for people looking to do uh the I guess you called it the um is it the on XL? Oh yeah, the ONXL, Ontario XL. No, O-N-X-L. I think that would be logistically yeah. way too challenging. <laughs> yeah. But uh Okay. So yeah. it's just a come come do it, enjoy it and uh or even just have fun. Yeah. Or just it shows like you can piece together more than one route. Like if you want it a little longer longer route like i know like one of my like i would one trip i'd love to do is like the hasty highlander which is, i would say is in southern and uh, central ontario and you could easily yeah. combine that with the log driver's waltz and that like those two routes together would be uh, like really really fun mm-hmm. yeah i'm looking forward to riding i i almost did it last year well i think i talked to you about it and at that point it was slightly longer right like it's been readjusted a bit you had it up to 800 something now it's Seven. seven just yeah i think seven seven something yeah i took out a yeah there was just one section that had just become was it that loop to the lake is that whatever that was yeah was there was like it become like a almost like riding a lot of it like riding on the beach it was people had told me it just becomes so sandy oh, that okay. i think it wrecked one one rider's knees or something like that just because of how <laughs> how slow it becomes oh, wow. so, but the, the challenging okay. with the challenging yeah. part with that route is that it's really in uh like uh ATV country, a lot of it. So I've had to like okay. be pretty creative to take it off the worst of like the ATV rail trails that become just yeah. so on it, like so unenjoyable. Like, cause it's just, they're so straight and like, so like straight riding that you think you should be going faster, but it's so rutted and yeah. that it's so. And, and some of those trails, I mean, they go all the way down to Belleville basically. And oh, like yeah. they're, they're, yeah. There, there's some rough ATV yeah. riding out there, and it's actually yeah. gotten worse during COVID, apparently. Like, oh, because people are out there, boot- yeah, yeah. ATVs. But, yeah. I mean, the good thing about this area, there's so many good gravel road alternatives that are actually more fun. Mm-hmm. So. In terms of like compared to the BT700, which could be ridden with a gravel bike on 45s, but I would totally, totally recommend if you're not aiming for an FKT, and even if you are aiming for an FKT, it's been done on 2.6. So, um, a mountain bike. What do you recommend on the Hasty? Highlander. That is a little more conducive to the gravel style, but I would still say for the most part, the same recommendation for the BT as for that, just because over the long haul on some of the rougher stuff, you're going to be more comfortable with a little more kind of a plush setup. I was debating, uh, honestly debating on the XL because I I use a Redshift um, handlebar stem, which has the suspension in it. Okay. And I also have the Redshift uh, suspension seat post. And I thought, man, okay, if I would have used the suspension seat post the first time around, you know, just for that comfort and added like, no, not destroying your back and shoulders as much. 
I wonder if like, as opposed to a mountain bike with bigger tires, but I don't know. I haven't decided what I'll do next year. We'll see. Yeah. Just remember, like if you're doing those two routes together, you got 1100 miles, 1100 kilometers of, you know, stuff that could be you true. up. So you got to think not one section, but like multiple, multiple sections that, uh, yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah. I think, um, yeah. Well, in gearing, I think that's where I, I made a big mistake last time. I didn't realize I, I should have gone with much, much better gearing options. And, uh, but anyways, yeah, it's amazing. I'm, I'm looking forward to riding your routes. And on that same note as well, I've created a website called Bikepacking Adventures and I'm linking to your routes and it goes all to his website as well. So it'll link you if you're reading any of that to, um, Bikepacking Ontario. And there's lots of, lots of really good resources. And I think you're, you're developing it more and more as you go, right? Yeah. I have another one in mind up, uh, like the Bruce Peninsula area in, uh, Ontario. That's like kind of going yeah. up towards where the, is that the, where the ferry is that goes to, uh, Manitoulin Island? Yeah. Is that kind so of? So Tobermory and that. So okay, it is. yeah, I hopefully yeah. can get out there in the spring before, uh, before peak tourist season up there, but before uh, the grand depart. And then <laughs> before you, you wear yourself down on that, right? <laughs> exactly. So, but we'll see how that goes. Nice. It's a long winter and it's just fun to kind of look at maps sometimes. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, well, Hey, um, anything else? No, I think that's it. And uh, yeah, so the Grand Depart for the BT is uh, Sunday, June 19th. And people can sign up when they like. Yeah, bt700.ca, right? Or .com. Yeah, yeah. .ca. And if someone's looking for another Grand Depart, I know Eric and Jen are running one on the Log Drivers Waltz. August, 20, August 10th or 20th, somewhere around there. Yeah, I think I forget. I'm thinking 20, 22nd, but it's all on their website there as it well. It could be. So, yeah. And that's after yeah, Log uh, Drivers Waltz. I think that's after peak bug season out there. So that's good as well. And there will be a grand depart for my uh, Canadian Shield bikepacking odyssey I'm, I'm developing as well. I oh, awesome. Oh, figure out exactly options. when <laughs> and what. And yeah, so yeah. that'll be in early July at the plan. So Oh, wow. Okay. Before great. I go on a road trip across Canada. <laughs> <laughs> One last thing. I know there's like some thought of coming up with a real bikepacking cross Canada website which, uh, route, which would be probably the longest in the world. Yeah, I think it's part of the great trail and like it's it's just at the moment there's definitely sections where it's it's kind of hard to to not be on pavement and all that. Yeah, so I think the right most now. challenging section is actually northern Ontario where you only have I a choice so of being on like the Trans-Canada Highway. So I would almost say you need to break with tradition and actually dip down into the United States at that point just to I yeah. think so as well. Yeah. yeah. I think that's the only real route if you're going to yeah, uh, try to avoid pavement as much as possible. Yeah, it's too bad. It's too bad there's not even a, a dirt road, you know, that kind of skirts the Trans-Canada or... Yeah, something. there's a... Stup- I've never Maybe been up all- there, but people just say, like, there's, like, there might be a few offshoot logging road stuff, but there's, yeah, people just say, mm-hmm. like, you can't even try to find a, an alternative. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, you don't have to hang up, but I'm going to stop the recording now. Uh, I'm going to say, Matthew, thank you for your time. It's been, uh, it's great to finally actually uh, get to put a voice to the face and in 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 the live view instead of just through pictures and um, to have this chat. Great. Thanks, Christopher. All right. Keep on pedaling. Bye-bye. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed the interview with Matthew Katie. It was really, really interesting to hear from him and how his journey from bikepacking, bike touring, and into route development kind of happened. Really cool. Great to have a chat with you, Matt. All right. That is it. Hope you guys enjoyed the podcast and keep on pedaling. Bye-bye.